0: The cloud has delivered amazing benefits like on-demand infrastructure that is easy to use with pay-as-you-go subscription plans and effortless scaling of applications. This flexibility minimizes the growing pains for businesses and explains why today's startups and established companies are both building apps on the cloud. However, the costs of using the cloud stack up once companies reach large scale. Dropbox, for example shifted away from the cloud in 2016 to opt for a custom-built infrastructure in co-location facilities. This was called Dropbox Magic Pocket. We covered it in a few previous episodes. In that exercise, they saved $75 million over two years and increased their gross margins from 33% to 67%. And it's not just Dropbox who is attempting to make this off-cloud migration. It turns out that some major companies are spending 75 to 80% of cost of revenue on their cloud bills. Consider how much of a company 75 to 80% of revenue leads to. So, should large companies shift away from the cloud like Dropbox did? Is it too late for some companies to untangle themselves from it? In this episode, we talk with Martin Casado of Andreessen and Horowitz. We discuss the costs of cloud for small and large companies and the financial implications of cloud infrastructure at scale. Our first book is coming soon. Move Fast is a book about how Facebook builds software. It comes out July 6th, and it's something we're pretty proud of. We've spent about two and a half years on this book, and it's been a great exploration of how one of the most successful companies in the world builds software. In the process of writing Move Fast... I was reinforced with regard to the idea that I want to build a software company. And I have a new idea that I'm starting to build. The difference between this company and the previous software companies that I've started is I need to let go of some of the responsibilities of software engineering daily. We're going to be starting to transition to having more voices on Software Engineering Daily. And in the long run, I think this will be much better for the business because we'll have a deeper, more diverse voice about what the world of software entails. If you are interested in becoming a host, please email me jeff at softwareengineeringdaily.com. This is a paid opportunity And it's also a great opportunity for learning and access and growing your personal brand. Speaking of personal brand, we are starting a YouTube channel as well. We'll start to air choice interviews that we've done in person at a studio. And these are high quality videos that we're going to be uploading to YouTube. And you can subscribe to those videos at YouTube and find the Software Daily YouTube channel. Thank you for listening. Thank you for reading. I hope you check out Move Fast. And very soon, thanks for watching Software Daily. Martin, welcome back to the show. Happy to be here. There's a phrase that I have heard in the software business, and that phrase is, it's easier to figure out a way to make more money than it is to figure out how to save money. Do you agree with that phrase? I actually do. Yeah, I do agree with that. That's a good phrase. And, and to what extent do you think that applies to the world of cloud?
1: Well, it's interesting. So all companies go through three... You and I have talked about this before, but all companies, I think, go through three stages, right? They go through the product stage, they go through the sales stage, and then they go through the operations stage, roughly. And these stages are... The first stage is finding product market fit. And that, I think, is just the hardest. It is the art you're trying to build something that people want and and frankly most companies don't get out of that don't get out of that stage but once you do and you've kind of gone through that saga you've built this dna around a company of innovation and growth and building something new and so then you move to the sales phase where you actually sell that and so i just think many companies when they cut their teeth they cut their teeth in this way of How do I add new value and how do I grow? And the best medium for that is absolutely the cloud. How can I set up infrastructure very quickly? How can I get access to services already running? How can I focus on my core competency, which is finding product market fit? I think the cloud is very, very good about that. But to your previous question, so you've got these companies that have spent, you know, often, you know, it could be a decade learning all the muscles for growth. The question is, is what happens when things saturate? and they're no longer growing. What do you do?
0: A quote from your recent article, if you're operating at scale, the cost of cloud can at least double your infrastructure bill. So I can understand that operating a cloud at scale can double my infrastructure bill relative to running on-prem infrastructure, but I thought that this saved operational expense in exchange so isn't that just fine? Like, Don't I compensate for my increased capital expenditure with savings in operational expenditures?
1: So actually, the numbers are all in. So that's not the case. Forget the on-prem or not on-prem, because that actually wasn't the focus of the analysis. I think we should talk about that probably in just a minute. The analysis says, it turns out That if you reduce your cloud spend by 50%, you get this massive uplift in share price. And for the companies we focused on, which are public software companies, where cloud is a part of COGS, which is very important to this conversation, this can be on the order of billions of dollars. And so what can you do with that billions of dollars? And this is all in. This is includes operations R&D. I mean, like it's, it's, it's strictly you've got higher share price, and that flows through to cash. So you've got more cash flow. You've got more access to capital, either by selling shares with equity or taking debt against the new price. And of course, you could invest that in growth if you wanted to. It's not correct to say that now you're doing more OpEx. And so doesn't that balance it out? Because the analysis actually includes that in the uplift. I mean, this is strictly a, a gain in the economics. Now, what you can say is, but the company doesn't focus on this. And so this, even though the numbers make sense, like this is a distraction, like that's a, that's a valid kind of line of inquiry we can go into, but numbers are the numbers. I mean, like it's strictly all in costs. You save a ton of money if you reduce your cloud costs.
0: Can you define the term cloud repatriation? Repatriation
1: is where you take workloads that were in the cloud and then you move them somewhere else. Most likely, this means to some other hosted infrastructure that's lower level. You know, let's say you've got like some Equinix or something like that where, you know, I mean, you're It's probably somebody else is hosting the servers and doing the racking and stacking. I don't think anybody's talking about that. But, you know, it's somebody else's kind of bare metal, or maybe there's a few VMs running on it or something like that, some minimal software layer. And then you move workloads off of the big three clouds, primarily, onto kind of a lower level infrastructure.
0: The first example that comes to mind is Dropbox. And there's been a lot of coverage of the Dropbox move off of AWS or more like partially off of AWS, the Dropbox case study is incredibly work-intensive, very difficult. How is that applicable to a broader set of companies?
1: Right. So, so Dropbox, it turns out that S3 isn't very good for a certain type of workload where you've got like a bunch of small files and so that's why even though so Dropbox did repatriate and this is a very well-known anecdote they a bunch of ratings and then they decided to move them kind of metadata layer back onto the cloud, which makes a ton of sense, right? So they decided that's the breakdown. It actually turns out, these names aren't public, so I can't go into them. There's other very large companies that, you know, it's, it's leaked enough that most people will know or view Google search to it, have done the same type of thing. They've decided that S3 store is too expensive, so it moves storage intensive workloads off. So this isn't unique to Dropbox. There's a number of companies that have done that. But here's what's even more interesting, which is the reason that we put Dropbox in the article is just because the numbers are public and we just wanted to be illustrative. It had nothing to do with the analysis. Actually had nothing. So if you look at the number, so let me just say what the analysis said. The analysis says that if you looked at public software companies today, 76% of which IPO'd in the last five years. So if you just look at those, we, we, we looked at 50 of those. If you could reduce the cloud cost by 50%, what happens? It just turns out that you've got a hundred billion dollars across those 50 <laughs> that's being depressed by the cloud. Of those 50, we actually spoke with a handful, let's say, I, I don't know exactly, let's say eight of that we spoke with on that order. Every single one of them that we spoke to had a repatriation effort in place or they were planning on it. And so even though Dropbox is a tired example, and it may not pertain to the general software, though it does certainly pertain to storage intensive workloads, this is a broad industry conversation that's happening, at least according to the conversations that we had. And the people that we talked to all said, listen, like, we calculate that the savings is 2 to 3x for running our own infrastructure.
0: Maybe you can help share in some anonymized fashion what they talk about in those conversations. Because to me, whether it's Dropbox or any vanilla SaaS product, Doing any kind of repatriation sounds really, really hard.
1: Yeah. So I think it's really important to also characterize the type of companies that we're talking about. Right. And so we're talking about large public SaaS companies. And they're in the core business of offering a SaaS service. Right. That's what they are. And these are decabillion dollar companies that already have platform teams with hundreds of people. And so you're absolutely right that repatriation is hard, but this isn't some startup. I mean, these are very sophisticated companies that are already running very sophisticated operations. And so at some point, it comes down to economics. And so I think what's very illustrative is what happened when the clouds had this exact moment. So I think that this is actually this, I think the article is a bit of a glimpse into the future. And I think what's illustrative is what the actual cloud providers did. So I remember back in, let's say, 2004. 2005, well, no, it's a little bit later, let's say 2006, 2007, when the cloud providers were like, they did the same analysis that we just did. So we're talking Google and Microsoft and and AWS. They're like, actually, if you look at our cogs, it turns out a significant part of it is the OEMs, right? It's Cisco with the networking gear. It's whoever's providing our servers. You know, that's making a significant percentage of our cost of goods. What do we do about it? Now it would seem absolutely ridiculous to build your own servers and switches. That sounds to your point, very hard. It sounds to your point, something that is not their core competency and a distraction. I mean, w- even way crazier than a SaaS <laughs> company <laughs> building a data center, it's crazier. Like what does is, what is Google know about building network switches? I mean, this is hardware, it's totally different. And yet because the economics were so compelling, that's exactly what they did. Facebook did the Open Compute Alliance, if I remember the name correctly. I mean, Google notoriously redid servers. They did a lot in the networking. They published about it. AWS did the same thing. And so it turns out is that once the economics are compelling enough, you have a case to do things that are not core. In the case of the cloud providers, they built switches and servers. In case of the SaaS providers, at some point, at some, I don't know when that point is, at some point, it makes sense to reduce COGS by doing it yourself. Now, the last thing I'll say is I used to run a $600 million data center software business, right? I ran all of network and security for VMware. And all of that was on-prem, you know, the majority of that. And on-prem data centers right now, I mean, this is a $100 billion business today. So there's a lot of people that are doing it and doing it just fine. I mean, the clouds actually don't have a monopoly on, on data center talent Yeah. So even though things are trending in that direction, I mean, there's a lot of proof points out there of very large data centers that are being run outside of the cloud.
0: And let's say you were running one of these large public SaaS companies that was doing a a repatriation. How would you architect that repatriation? How would you plan it at a practical level? So I'm not sure I
1: would ever argue for repatriation. And I ser- we certainly, in, in in the article, did not argue for repatriation at all. I mean, it was, it was mostly an analytical device. Here's what I would recommend. The first one is to realize that cloud costs over time have a significant impact to share price. And that means free cash flow, right? I mean, that's access to capital. That's access to growth, right? And so you should plan for that. I think a pretty straightforward way is you actually make cloud costs a uh, first order KPI or primitive, right? So we've talked to founders and business leaders who would actually spiff engineer if they would reduce cloud costs through optimization. We talked to others. These are, you know, these are large, significant, successful companies that would, as part of like internal dashboarding would actually have the cloud costs as part of that. We had others that instituted a hybrid cloud policy early on. And so I think there's a lot of steps that you can do to reduce cloud costs. And I, that's, that was the point of the article. It wasn't to argue for against repatriation. I have no idea if it makes sense for any given company to repatriate. What I do know, and I I don't have a stance on that, what I do know is of the companies we spoke to, and we spoke to many, many either had or were planning to repatriate. So it's clearly a conversation that's happening. I honestly am not in the position to describe how one should go about that. I just know, (laughs) this is more of a report. I just know that it's a conversation that's happening. And financially, it actually, at some point, makes sense.
0: As an investor, I'm sure you have seen... The multitude of cloud cost optimization companies. Why hasn't there been? So, like at first glance, to me, cloud cost optimization looks like one of those areas that's sort of like logging, where you have eventually you have some kind of Datadog winner or quote unquote winner that takes a like maybe a plurality of market share but you haven't really seen a breakout winner in cost optimization. Why is that?
1: This is such a great, this is such a great question. I actually think this gets to kind of the heart of, of, of all of this stuff, which is, okay, so I think that an analysis like this is really looking ahead five years or so, right? I mean, we're honestly still in early innings for the cloud. So the cloud not only is growing asymptotically, Right. If you actually look at the growth curves, I mean, like the second derivative is definitely positive. I mean, it's super linear, but the clouds are getting very good at optimizing themselves as well. Costs for the cloud have dropped a whole bunch, and so that benefits the customers. And so, if you look at it right now, I mean, from a customer standpoint, costs are dropping. You know, growth is going. There's a lot of services there, and so listen, Datadog is fantastic, and there's a number of optimization companies. I mean, they really are competing with kind of a growing market where the platforms themselves are doing a fantastic job of lowering price, right? The question happens is what happens when things mature a bit more? Now, what the clouds have been very good is at maintaining 30% margins. And so how do you get those? Well, you get them by, you know, whatever, charging for new services and maybe, you know, having higher prices for small customers. Or, I mean, there's just a lot of room or you are more sophisticated than the rest of the industry because you do do your own servers or because you do have, like, there's a lot of ways to get to that 30% margin. But again, if you look at the OEMs and what happened with the cloud service providers, it's instructive. At some point, at some point, things mature a bit. And at some point, there are viable alternatives, right? So let's look at... The, actually, I was talking with George Frazier, who's the founder of Fivetran. He had this kind of great point, which I think is right, which is if you have an oligopoly where you can maintain margins at 30%, you know, as long as you've got a differentiated product and you're doing great and you're growing, that's totally fine. But at some point, you know, the industry catches up and that always happens. And at that point, if somebody stands up in infrastructure that is similar but has lower margins, and that's the goal, which actually happens in the pharmacy industry once you've got, you can actually create generics, then all of a sudden that provides a viable alternative for people to move to. But that only happens once you actually start to see kind of the differentiation and innovation slow down. And so This is kind of a long rambly response, but it answers your specific questions. And then it kind of, I think it answers the follow-on question. So to your specific question, I think the reason is is that no optimization company has become significant is because I think the clouds are doing a great job of lowering costs themselves through a bunch of internal optimization and kudos to them. They've done a great job of that. However, they have maintained 30% margins, which suggests to me that as soon as that gap slows down, like they can't drop those prices, that alternatives happen, which in a competitive market, they should happen. That's the big question. So let's go four years in the future. And let's say that the big three are clinging to 30% margins. They can't drop prices much more. There are competitive solutions out there that are at 15% margins. Will the big three reduce their own margins or will they allow the workloads to move off? I don't know the answer to that. I do know that in the case of the OEMs and the clouds, the clouds just decided to move off of traditional hardware maybe that will happen. Maybe the SaaS vendors are like, screw this. I'm not paying your 30% margins, big cloud company. I'm going to go to this other thing and pay them 50% margins because we're sophisticated enough and we're fed up enough. Or maybe the big three will be like, listen, we're happy with less margins and they'll stay on. But nobody knows the answer to that. But I I do think that the finances are becoming sufficiently compelling that this eventuality will happen. Like This question will happen. We're we're going into this, this paradox, this question.
0: The cloud cost optimization domain. Do you see it like how investable is it, and 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 how much like a consulting business is it? Is there a standardized way to attack cloud cost optimization?
1: Yeah, no, that's a no. That's a great. That's a great question. When it comes down to it, if you're really being grandiose, which I can't, I can't help but be. <laughs> we're talking about like a trillion dollars in value. I mean. In the paper, like, we're very conservative with every number that we put out. I mean, it's not hard to say, like, there's actually a trillion dollars in market cap that's being captured by the big five, right? It's a massive, massive market. And by the way, if you look at what is the combined market cap of, like... Microsoft, Google, and and AWS. It's about five trillion dollars, right? So it's five trillion dollars, and to so to say that five hundred billion to a trillion is going from you know the rest of the industry into them isn't isn't a stretch. I mean that's you know that's ten to twenty five percent, right? So then there's a question. It's like, okay, is there an opportunity for startups to go after that? You know, five hundred billion to one trillion. I think the answer is absolutely. Whether this is Surfacing cloud metrics, whether this is doing actual cloud optimization itself, whether it's providing paths for repatriation. I mean, I think there's a number of things you can do. There's kind of marketplaces, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And so I, I definitely think this is investable. But like I told you, I believe it's early days. I mean, I think this comes to a head in a few years. I just, you know, I just think that now we're starting to see the real impact. And I want to reiterate of the 50 companies we look at, 76% IPO'd in the last five years. This is a very new phenomenon, right? Of these 76% that ipo in the last five years, we're talking about billions of dollars of market cap being depressed because of the use of cloud, right? I mean, so listen, if you play this out in the future, something has to give.
0: So given the the tone of the article that you're clarifying here that this is not really about repatriation. It's not about everybody should go buy a cost optimization tool off the shelf. You're more appealing to the idea that from the get-go and throughout the life cycle of a company, you should be considering how to reduce costs on the cloud front or how to avoid costs on the cloud front. So does that mean, should there be a centralized cost optimization team in your company? Should Or should you have a KPI for every team to reduce costs by 10%? What should that look like?
1: Great question. Yeah, yeah. I think, so, Yeah, yeah it's funny. I, I mean, I've written a lot of pieces over the years, and this one has, I think, been probably kind of misquoted, <laughs> you know, like misread, misrepresented a lot, but like, I also think it goes to show you that this actually is a very real issue and people are really having the conversations. And it actually reminds me very much of the early days of software defined networking. which is funny, in the early days of software defined networking, by the way, this is in 2006, 2007. We were like, <laughs> it's almost the same. We were like, you know what, wouldn't it be better if instead of buying these like 60% margin switches from Cisco, you just built your own, especially if you're a data center. And people are like, no, that's crazy. (laughs) Why would you ever do that? You don't know anything about building switches. You don't know anything about building routers, like yada, yada, yada. And then, of course, you know, now like they did that and it's very commonplace. This feels very similar. And so the question is, is that you're asking is, what do you do if you believe the analysis? And the problem is, or not the problem is, I think is I'm not sure if people are internalizing or believe the analysis yet. But if you assume the analysis is correct, if you assume that actually cloud is going to be 50% of cogs going forward, there's this big existential question for a company of what you do. And I think there is an array of options. And I think the one that you, I think there's two things that you should consider. I think the one that you just articulated is a great one, which is, yes, cloud costs have to be a core metric that is tracked and it has to be throughout the organization, right? We're actually also seeing this with analytics generally in the business, right? Like like one big trend we see in BI is we're pushing it to all parts of the organization, including product and engineering. I think the same thing needs to happen with cloud costs for sure. So you really understand the impact of writing code. But I think another implication is to realize that architecturally, the business case may happen, may happen that you have to find an alternate means of doing infrastructure, And you have to answer the question what that means. It may mean don't do anything. It may mean prepare for it to happen. I don't know. And so just to step back very quickly, I think the point of the article is to say we may hit some point in the future, I don't know when, where this is an industry and we have a shift that happens. I think there's some near-term things companies can do to deal with it. But how that ends up playing out, I think it's
0: still pretty early to say. So in the analysis you did did you have any conversations with the layer two cloud providers that you're familiar with? like obviously Netlify is a, is a portfolio company I'd just be curious as to how they think about this set of problems because they effectively make their own margin on top of the cloud margin
1: yeah so we talked primarily to SaaS to big SaaS companies and so that was the focus of it the rough sketch was whats what I've said. You've got these big SaaS players that if you look at their cogs, more than 50% of them is cloud. If you look at what that does to the share price, it depresses it by billions of dollars. Now what? And that's what it was. And then we spoke to a bunch of them. They're like, well, we repatriate some stuff. We know it's an issue. <laughs> you know, <laughs> like, We don't really know what to do, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And so it's really just to highlight that eventuality. I think you've got a great question is what happens to the other infrastructure layers. I do think I do think that one real eventuality is you do have alternate providers pop up that have different margin structures cuz you no longer have an oligopoly and the market actually takes care of this. It. So it's, it's not a you know it's actually you actually have competition. You start to road margins. You have more alternatives. And I think those can look at any shape, right? I mean, we see startups that are like, oh, we do kind of all TP as a service. And do they use... The clouds? No. I mean, they often run their own infrastructure or they use kind of a lower-level hosting infrastructure. We do, you know, we have see companies that are like next generation CDNs, you know, same type of thing. And so I I actually think the clouds could be disintermediated by a layer that doesn't impact COGS as much. But again, you know, now we're all guessing is what is going to happen because of this massive economic pressure that's being caused by the clouds.
0: Does something have to happen? I mean, because all the companies that you're looking at, I mean, it's still like from a fundamental perspective, look pretty strong even with this massive cloud expense. Does something actually have to change here? Where, where is the pressure? I think this is the question.
1: As long as everybody grows indefinitely... Okay, let's just look at from the view of the stock market. So the stock market looks at a company and it says, you know, you're growing nicely. I don't care about your cogs. Is there any pressure to change? No. The stock market doesn't care, your share price is great. And if your share price is great, you can get more cash, you can comp your people better, you can get more debt, that flows through to cash. So that's great. The question happens is, what happens when growth slows? And this starts impacting your multiples. And which we showed in the analysis is that, you know, listen, if 50% of your COGS is the cloud, it's going to impact your multiples. And now you've got a question as a business leader, which is, okay, well, am I going to do something about it? Yes or no? Now, 50% of cars, so half the companies we looked at, we estimated that cloud is 50% of their car. It's an enormous amount, right? And so as this matures, again, this is a relatively new phenomenon. As this matures, I do think there's going to be pressure on that. And I do think some subset are going to want to deal with the problem. This is already bearing out in the conversations that we have, which is like... These companies are aware of their business. They know it's an issue and they're planning around this issue. I do think that we're going to see something happen. And the question is, what is that? Is it the cloud providers are going to drop their margins? Maybe. Is it going to be there's going to be viable alternatives that are Baidu steps in? (laughs) You know, like maybe. Is it going to be repatriation? Maybe. I haven't a clue what it's actually going to look like. But my sense is there's going to be enough pressure to cause something. And again, remember, when this happened last time, when the cloud providers looked at their margin structure in in the 2000s, they started building switches and routers, man. Cogs are important, enough so that people will go build hardware. I, I just don't see why you wouldn't think that you're going to see alternates for the clouds for the same reason.
0: Today, do you see battles between the cloud providers for big contracts? Like, does Oracle Cloud fight versus AWS for a big contract with a SaaS company? Does DigitalOcean fight with Google for a big contract? Or does that just not happen? Because there's just, yeah, does, it, does that occur or not?
1: So, I mean, for sure, these are, there's competition for, for workloads, 100%. But I think once, there's two considerations we need to make. The first one is the premium products are the big three. I mean, I just think they've got differentiated products they're the most mature. They've got the most users. They've got the most experience, and so I think that it's hard to compare like AWS to like you know a, a different cloud, right? So and then of course you know like the skills that people like a lot of people understand AWS or GCP or or Azure, right? And so I, I actually think that they've got a, an oligopoly. So I think the big three, sure they've got competition, but I don't think it's apples to apples. I think they've got an oligopoly because they were there first and they invested a lot in it. They've got differentiated products and they also have got people trained and they've got a good moat. So then, the question is: Is well, what about the oligopoly? So you've got the big three. Why aren't they dropping margins? So oligopoly dynamics economically are just different than free market dynamics, right? If we can maintain our margins, I you know if I'm AWS, and I know Google's share price or I know Google's pricing and I know Azure's pricing, but I think I can beat them on features. Like, why would I drop my pricing and like impact the stock price? And so you just don't see the same level of market efficiencies when you're dealing with oligopolies as when you're not. And so I I believe that it is a oligopoly situation, which means that, you know, you do have three kind of differentiated products. And I do believe that that's the economic situation, which is why they've been able to maintain the margin structure that they have.
0: Did Kubernetes change the cost structures of running infrastructure?
1: I don't think so. I mean, it maybe made it more expensive. (laughs) But I I don't know. I don't know. I don't know, if it's, I don't know if it's done anything. Listen, I think it's a great architectural principle. I think it's a great tool. I think it's a relatively low-level thing. And I don't know if it's actually changed this dynamic at all.
0: Yeah. What about portability?
1: I don't think it's sufficient to provide portability. And I just think that that's such a tough problem that I think it's a potentially useful tool in a very complex and big problem, to put it that way. So I think, I think it's useful in that sense. And I think that the right team and architecture can use it in a positive way and it definitely adds value in that way but I don't think it's its own solution. I think that there's a much much broader consideration if you're going to try and get to true kind of portability between clouds.
0: So, I have a variety of other questions that are sort of tangentially related to to this subject, but we can, we can come back to the subject. This one's a little bit far flung, but do you have any perspective on when the crypto world genuinely overlaps with the infrastructure world. Do you have any perspective on when we get the crypto cloud?
1: So, I mean, just a little bit about my background, which is, you know, I mean, like, I was basically distributed systems guy in the early 2000s come networking guy, you know, and then i Built the company that did basically built software for data centers. Then I ran a relatively large business that built software for data centers, and so I, I come from that world. When it comes to crypto, there's a bunch of use cases where it's fantastic, right? Like you know, like the store of value, things like NFT, where you make us you know trust assumptions. There's specific trust assumptions that you don't find elsewhere, right? Like you know, money. I mean, like everybody can. Be a sociopath with money and you want to protect from civil attacks, and that makes sense. And so I think crypto is fantastic at these types of use cases when it comes to identity and you know, etc. When it comes to core core infrastructure, however, I think one of two things needs to happen. Either the algorithm the crypto algorithms need to evolve to be competitive with a tightly coupled system. Tightly coupled systems are incredibly efficient, which is why you've got three basically built big clouds and like, you know, peer-to-peer kind of didn't work in that. And it's been tried many, many times. So either you have to kind of evolve the core algorithms to be sufficiently fast, or you've got to rewrite the workloads that you're running to be purely distributed. And not everything is purely distributed. And so my sense is what's going to happen is crypto is going to chew off the use cases that make the most sense. And there's a bunch of them that do. I think it's a very, very positive trend. And then I think rather than my guess is rather than crypto all of a sudden being able to take on AWS, I think people will rewrite their apps to be more crypto native. And that's a long, slow process, right? I, I think that's a very different thing, right? Because you could believe like, okay, someone is going to come up with like the absolute right crypto protocol so that when we all run it, it's identical to you know a big crypto cloud in the sky. And then we can run our existing apps on it. I think that's very unlikely. I think it's much more like, you know, like here's our crypto protocol and like you can write an app for it. And there's a bunch of apps that will support, but you have to you have to rewrite your app. That's going to happen more and more. I mean, I can't tell you how quickly, but I would bet on that future much more than the big crypto data center is going to kind of pop up at some point.
0: What about more broadly applications of crypto to enterprise software. And just just bear with me cuz this, this sounds kind of ridiculous today I think but 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 it, it, I mean so if you think about like consumerization of the enterprise that's happened right? And who would have thought when Facebook was coming out that these kinds of principles would be applied to enterprise software very successfully. If you think about crypto, crypto is the atomization of incentives and large organizations are all about incentives. Are there applications of tokens or crypto protocols that could have applications to enterprise software.
1: Yeah, I just want to say something that's not obvious here, because I just feel like this conversation has become almost a cliche. Not investment advice? Is that, is that the... No no no, 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 it's not. I just, I just feel like I mean, I feel everybody says the same thing. What about supply chains? You know, like, <laughs> you know, it's, like it's like the I'm, same thing. I'm not talking,
0: ab- not talking about supply chains. Definitely not talking no, know, about just, supply chains. I-
1: Here's the thing. I think the right way to evaluate crypto is on the trust assumptions. And there's been very few like truly federated systems that have penetrated the enterprise historically, right? So if you think about what federated systems have, well, it turns out BGP is, is federated, right? It's almost counter game theoretic, right? <laughs> like if you know BGP, which is you know, everybody runs their BGP router and they they peer and they trust each other, et cetera, et cetera. So there is some precedence, but it's pretty, pretty historical. I think the reason why you haven't seen federated systems actually emerge a lot in the B2B context is because you actually have a a structured relationship around payment already, right? Like so for example, if you're going to buy something from me, I'm going to have like your driver's license and like <laughs> you know we're going to exchange money and like we've met each other. There's kind of a much more structured relationship there. So I I think strictly in the B2B context where it's businesses buying from businesses, I I, I think there's a a lot of laws and regulations and a slow sales cycle, et cetera, where I think crypto is, is less relevant in the near term. Where I think it's more relevant to your point is B2C, where businesses are trying to establish a relationship with anybody out there, and there it makes a lot of sense because not only can companies, whether they're brands or whatever, you know, establish their own tokens and their own networks, you know, like you know, you see a lot of companies jumping into the whole NFT thing, right? Like that makes a lot of sense. I think in the B2C context, it definitely makes sense. In the B2B context, there there, there may be use cases, but I think they're far less prevalent. And I think because you have existing procurement relationships in place, it just makes it less of an, an immediate need. So I focus pretty much on the core core infrastructure so I don't deal a ton with this but you know if I were I would focus more on the B2C use cases I believe
0: All right well closer to your specialization you have done a lot of data infrastructure deals and it almost seems like the data infrastructure space was kind of an emergent emergent opportunity and you guys captured a, a lot of the 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 big deals and almost to, to a point where you have a, a real portfolio synergy and a gravity in the portfolio where you can presumably have some interesting information sharing. And I'd just love to know how does in this increasingly competitive venture world, how does portfolio synergy allow you to win deals that you wouldn't otherwise win?
1: So to win deal, there's two big Advantages to portfolio synergy on the winning deal front. Like the way that we think about investments is we look at spaces and we do a lot of work in the space, right? And you know, a space as large as data has got a ton of subspaces. Like even like if you split data into like basically analytics and AI, ML, like those are you could have venture firms that just focus on either of those. <laughs> and so one advantage is simply that you really get to learn the spaces and I think that's value to the entrepreneur because if you invest you can bring that knowledge both the background but also the understanding of how the spaces evolve and so I think that you know provides value another thing and this is a little bit unique to Andreessen Horowitz but I think it's becoming more common in the industry is, we have Andreessen Horowitz, as, as people know, as a platform, and we provide services to to our portfolio companies. One of those services is called is basically a market network, so we we can introduce them to a number of customers. And anyhow, you know, this has been hugely successful, right? Like, let me talk to my company, missera I mean, you know, I, I think the first ten significant customers came from you know Andreessen Horowitz's <laughs> market development network. And so, for those, the more that we can kind of group like-for-like companies, I think the more that they can work together in a customer account, if that makes sense. And so there's this almost secondary effect of Like, for example, we say we'll do a data week where we'll have all of our data companies meet with companies that are interested in this. It actually gives them kind of a better qualified conversation because... This is uh, an active conversation in a certain space that's happening, right? Rather than just here's some random intro. I mean, I, I, I think it actually matures the market kind of in a, in a bit of a different way. So I think those are the two primary advantages. We actually understand the space and then we can, when it comes to actually providing services for them,
0: we can take advantage of the momentum. Going deeper on the data infrastructure space, the... Spark versus Snowflake ecosystem. Are these disparate ecosystems? Are they mutually exclusive, or are they overlapping? Well, that is
1: the big question. That's a great question, but that is the big question, right? So, we roughly break data into two sectors. There's the analytic sector, which is more of a traditional sector, right? That includes like BI and data warehouse and reporting, and the primary use case there is kind of human aided decision making. You kind of assume there's a human being in the loop the big use cases are like dashboarding and reporting and then the other one is this more AIML world where often more compute intensive jobs maybe you're creating models you're doing those models in production you're dealing with unstructured data it's kind of this new AI is becoming a primitive in applications and so you know it's pretty clear that these markets are separate and even complementary right we did this this big study where we talked to a bunch of practitioners and we found that a ton use both like spark and, and snowflake or they'll have a data warehouse and they'll have like a like a data lake. And so I believe today these are two markets. Snowflake is is much more on the analytics, you know, spark and databricks is much more kind of unstructured data, operational AI/ML. That said, it's pretty clear we're starting to see convergence happening. Meaning, you know, let's, you know, let's talk about like the lakehouse construct, right? Which is if I can have, you know, a SQL layer that can talk to a bunch of different data stores, do I even need to have a data warehouse? And, you know, while it's still early days, I do think that we're starting to see that happen right now. And so the future is uncertain, but it seems to be that these are converging. But today, if you're to do a survey, I think you find very, very distinct markets.
0: How did the pandemic affect go- to market strategies for infrastructure companies
1: I think it's been actually a, a net positive for most companies just because you know the infrastructure was really required to keep businesses online if companies weren't talking about digitization before they were because of the pandemic and and making that happen is is just very much an infrastructure thing and so I think it was that was a, it was a net positive in that there was a lot of pull from the customer trying to make sure that everything was up and running and online. But the one caveat is the companies that relied on evangelical direct sales and category creation environments, that was more tough because those require trust building. They require multiple meetings that require deep conversations and that's just harder to do over Zoom and to do remotely. And I think the companies are trying to figure out how to do that. What we saw across the portfolio is mostly reasonable to positive performance with a few that took a few quarters to figure out kind of the new method of selling. I would say by now it's all been positive like I think that you know it's been a net positive like sales are more efficient actually over zoom the companies that were leaning bottom up dabbling with bottom up do a better job of it now you know infrastructure is probably arguably more relevant than it was before the pandemic <laughs> because it has to be remote <laughs> and so I would say that the 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 pandemic which i mean it was a horrible health crisis and public crisis et cetera, but in general actually helped you know push infrastructure in the direction it was already heading
0: as far as Deal dynamics. Since everything went to remote, did the cycle time of deals getting done get compressed?
1: You're talking about venture deals, or are you talking yes venture deals
0: venture deals Sorry, not vendor deals.
1: Yeah, I don't know. I don't have a broad answer for that. I think here's what did happen, which is I think you removed a lot of standard channels for for investors to source new deals or establish new relationships. And so I think you saw higher velocity with known deals. I mean, I think there was a lot more of like, let's call investor X and talk about their portfolio. There's a lot more of going through like the the list of companies you've already talked to. And so I, I think there was a lot more of like picking over the existing deals. And so I think that accelerated, but I think broadly I wouldn't say things have accelerated. Does that make sense? There was a yeah. lot of deals being done, but I, I think it's kind of for, it kind of forced investors to focus on what they knew, just because there's a lot of trust building that's required in investing. And so, again, I don't want to be categorical. A lot of new deals were done as well, but I think that you know everybody has seen kind of the pace of deals. But a lot of these are deals that we all have known and talked to in, in this and that. So I, I think that absolutely happened.
0: Was there anything that? changed dramatically for you for how you think about investing or, or being a venture investor more specifically in the time of the pandemic?
1: You know, I, I think my kind of macro view on on what happened with the pandemic is that there's a lot of, you know, Listen, we're in this, you know, three decade march towards infrastructure everywhere and using the internet and being remote. And we've paid it a lot of lip service as a society. And it kind of forced us along an existing Trend, and so I would just say that it's one thing to think about you know what it means to be remote, and it's another thing to be remote. and so I found that there was a lot of things that I thought were necessary that are clearly not necessary as far as investing being present you know this and that i think the bottom line is like i think we've all done the mental exercise in the last few years of i oh, what would it be if i like did everything purely remote and you got to pressure test those ideas and so i think ultimately i think it moved along a trend that we're all already on and for myself things that i thought that i would need to be in person to like i got disabused of some of that like there's things that that I thought I need to be in person that I don't. On the other hand, there's things I kind of thought I, I could outsource, which I got disabused of that as well. You know, if you're exploring a new area and you're working with multiple people, I think it's actually very important to have free flow conversation but honestly, you know, as someone who was traveling probably 50% time, being able to slow down on that and really focus on process was a huge win. And so that was a big, big help too. And so the answer is, is yes, but maybe not in a, a significant, not in a first order way. It was all kind of second order stuff.
0: Gotcha. Okay. Well, just looping back to the impetus for this conversation to close off, there are so many things to do as a large company, if you're trying to do quote-unquote digital transformation, and most of those things, to my mind, require deploying more infrastructure and buying more cloud and getting CICD software and getting lots of things that, that cost money. How should a large enterprise that is already in the midst of doing a digital transformation and spending a lot apply your plea to start thinking about saving money.
1: Ah, okay, great. So our analysis was not about the enterprise, and I don't even know if it applies. It probably doesn't even apply. So our analysis was very specifically, if you're a software company, if you're a SaaS company, and cloud is a significant portion of your cogs, which is most SaaS companies, here's the impact to you. But it necessarily requires that the cloud be part of your cogs. Like it's your product. Your product is a software product and the cost of goods is cloud. And it requires you to be a public company because the this was like how the public market views your multiples. If you don't have those two things, the analysis is just not relevant at all. So as far as the enterprise is concerned, I mean, it's a very, very different calculus. And I, I think that war is, is currently being battled. and These are very sophisticated teams. And I think they're probably... Converging on whatever is the natural outcome is probably the right outcome right now. Like that movement has been largely from on-prem to cloud. It's been a tough battle. I think it's the right one. I think the majority of their workload should be in cloud. That I strongly believe in. But if you're a SaaS company and your product is software, right? Listen, if, if listen, if your product is cereal, you should be in cloud, right? You I can. mean, like it's not a part of your cogs, right? Like wheat is a part of your cogs. Like if you're if you're making car parts. You should be using the cloud because the cloud is not part of your cogs. If you're building a SaaS app and 80%, we talked to companies where 80% of their cogs is cloud, 80%. This is a first class concern, man. <laughs> it's 80% of your Cog. We're talking like potentially billions of dollars of market cap. Now it's interesting. And then what do you do? I mean, it's not super clear, but what is clear to me is we're going to see I think, a reckoning in the next five years. Something has to happen.
0: Martin, thanks for coming back on the show.
1: Yeah, that was great.